following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. And that was Ewan McCall with Nuclear Means Jobs. We're going to be talking about the ongoing threat of nuclear and uranium issues today. So good morning. You are listening to Zena Richardson and soon will be joined by Scotty Foster, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. It might surprise our listeners to know that Australia has been continuously at war since 2001 when we joined the US invasion of Afghanistan following the terrorist attacks of September 11th that year. This is the longest period of warfare our country has ever been engaged in, increasing Australia's risk as a terrorist target. Chemical and biological weapons, along with nuclear weapons, are termed as weapons of mass destruction because of their large-scale indiscriminate effects. Although of these three classes of weapons, nuclear weapons are by far the most destructive, and we've seen enough movies to know what happens there. We might like to think we've come a long way since the days of the Cold War, but if the posturing and juvenile name-calling that we saw between outgoing US President Donald Trump and North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un, who only this week doubled down on his country, uh, country's nuclear program, is anything to go by, nuclear weapons still represent a major threat um, and existential threat to our planet, actually. So no emergency response is possible um, with a nuclear disaster, and the only ethical approach is to prevent their use. Joining us this morning to talk about the current and future impact of nuclear and uranium issues, we have three stellar guests, or actually two stellar guests and one stellar activist group. Um, So first up, joining us uh, via phone is Dave Sweeney, who is a nuclear-free campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation. Um, Dave is a Nobel Peace Prize winner and a prominent Australian anti-nuclear campaigner. So welcome to the show this morning, Dave. Hey, good morning, Fina, and thanks very much. You are most welcome. So perhaps you could give our listeners a little bit of background on what drew you to your work, um, you know, to uh, be a campaigner against anti-nuclear and obviously uranium mining as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, when I was growing up and cutting my teeth and getting a sort of political awareness, um, there was still a pretty big um, sting in the tail of the Cold War. It was Reagan, Thatcher times. Um, nuclear weapons and nuclear concerns were very high on the agenda. Um, and so I shared that concern, Zena, about, you know, the indiscriminate mass destruction of these weapons and a person like Ronald Reagan being out the one to push the button. Um, yes, the, 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 the B-movie I, actor. Yeah, yeah, well, as I, um, as I got more into that, I realised that, you know, uh, the connection that came with uranium, because if you look at every... Um, every nation's nuclear program, like a civil nuclear program, it started off with an expression of interest or a desire to develop a, a military capacity. Like that's how operation, the uh, Manhattan operation, the US first bomb, the bombs that were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki developed. It's how all the, the uh, civil nuclear power systems developed, you know, including the UK and India. Mm. So I saw that we lived in Australia. I, I was supposed influenced by that think globally, act locally slogan. I saw that we lived in Australia and we had 40% of the world's uranium, Zena. So maybe a good thing to do would be to turn that tap off. 
Um, and, you know, that's still part, that's a fundamental part of the work I do. And I work with um, ACF, the Australian Conservation Foundation, and a key part of ACF's work is to do that transition work from Australia as a provider of risky and dirty energy in the form of either nuclear or coal to Australia as a, as a leader in clean and renewable energy techniques. So it was just seeing the big picture of mass destruction Seeing the linkage of where we uh, were either directly or indirectly as a nation fueling this. And then as I've um, been more engaged, you see more reasons, you know, uh, affected communities, damaged environment, um, uh, all sorts of reasons and risks uh, to make sure that we continue these efforts to disengage Australia from being a, a provider or a facilitator of things nuclear. Mm, exactly. You know, it seems to me, you know, it's it's almost a psychopathic approach to develop nuclear weapons. Like I, I don't know exactly how much um, they would have known with the Manhattan Project exactly what the outcome would have been. I'm sure they had hypothetical ideas. But, you know, you could argue at that point, I mean, there's never a good argument for it, but you could argue at that point, okay, there, there was a, a desire to end the war and a belief in, you know, the threat of uh, one nation against another. I mean, and we came through the Cold War, but you know we've had a lot of periods in our um, last century and this century where we shouldn't even be thinking about nuclear weapons. Like, what is this sort of thinking behind the idea of developing weapons of mass destruction like this? Like, surely there's no other species in existence that does things like this to itself. That's an extraordinarily insightful question mm-hmm. and comment, mm-hmm. and, you're, and you're absolutely on the money. It's an ex- <laughs> it's a it, it's a complete uh, lost approach. Nuclear weapons have no strategic value. Like you can't use a mini nuke and that sort of stuff. It's like they have negligible strategic military value, um, and they have maximum destructive value or capacity for people and planet. Um, so it is a really, literally, quite an insane uh, uh, configuration to think that nuclear weapons can make you safer. Um, and they, uh, I think it's a a relic of Cold War times. I think it's a relic of... The thinking, period. yeah. Yeah, the thinking <laughs> that, that um, uh, propels that. And it's like, as you said in your first introduction, it's very common thinking. It's not. This is not uh, an issue in the past. Um, uh, there was so many uh, concerns over so long. You mentioned maybe there was a justification or maybe there was a reason... A, a belief in justification. Like, I, yeah, don't, I don't think there could yeah. ever be a true justification. But Yeah, sorry, I um, don't mean to verbal you, but yeah, that, that <laughs> seems to... Maybe the people involved in that thought that this was the best thing to do, you know? Um, but uh, if that ever existed as a justification, it ended when they saw the damage at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And you even heard at that time, if you go back and look at country at that time, Many members of the Manhattan Project, those bombs possible, then went on to petition the US president to make that weapon abolished. Um, Albert Einstein, his reflection on it was, if I'd known, I would have been a watchmaker. So there was a very clear sense um, amongst many of those early scientists and developers that they had crossed the line and moved into a realm more akin to the power of, you know, the gods than Mm. the power of people. Um, Unfortunately, tragically, really, um, those calls, those early calls 
for like a unilateral disarmament were not heard or heeded. And, you know, we have the situation now where more nations along the way developed nuclear weapons. And you had that whole situation, which was summed up by the very apt acronym of MAD, of Mutually Assured Destruction, mm. where for 40-odd years, Soviet Russia or Soviet Union looked at the West and the West looked at the at Moscow and said, um, you know, if you move, if you blink, we will too. And it was this, we have the power to destroy each other in this tense balance. Now, the globe, that time is gone, but the weapons haven't. Sadly, the number of weapons has dramatically reduced at the end of the Cold War. The power of those weapons, the fact that so many of them, Zena, are still on hair trigger alert, the, the, uh, an increased number of, of players, um, who often have very uh, sectional interests and concerns, like, for example, Israel and Pakistan and our nuclear weapon states, North Korea. So it is a real issue of temporary concern and urgency here, and that's reflected. There's a group called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. It was actually set up by many of the scientists who worked on that original Manhattan program. Each year they do something and release a thing that some listeners might be well aware of, and that's called the Doomsday Clock, where they measure as objectively and disinterestedly as they can. So, you know, they measure the risks to the overwhelming existential risks to humanity, and they set a clock at minutes to midnight. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the closer you are to midnight, you know, the, the riskier and more serious things are. And right now, because explicitly because of the combined check climate change and nuclear weapons, the clock is at 100 seconds to midnight. Um, and that is as close as it has ever been. It's, it's more risk, according to their assessment and methodology. There's more risk now than during the coldest period of the Cold War, Zena. So it's a deeply concerning thing. It's a really uh, important uh, campaign and push now to try absolutely to delegitimise these weapons, to change the way we talk about these weapons, and they're not seen in a security context, they're seen in a weapons of mass destruction context, and to build on, you know, a really significant start to abolish these weapons by, uh, which is happening through the UN Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which has come about, which makes these weapons unlawful and for the first time since that time in the Los Alamos desert or the New Mexico desert that the mushroom cloud was first seen, in a few days on the 22nd of January Zena, these weapons for the first time ever become formally and finally illegal in international humanitarian law so that's a really important step and stage into unwrapping the reptilian brain that is nuclear uh, energy and, and nuclear weapons in particular, and um, you know, and building uh, an absolutely safer and saner future. Yes, that's. I mean, I think we've also shifted away from maybe the concept that the weapons were for our protection to now it's basically a, you know, it's a money making, you know, control um, allocating process. You know, it's 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 become less of a defence and, and more of a business. You know, in, in yep. its in its very disturbing way. Absolutely, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very big business. The end of the world is mm-hmm. big business, and there's big corporate money involved in it. It's also, as well as big business and dollars, um, it is also linked to a sense of 
uh, national prestige and power. There's still a residual sense that um, if you've got nuclear weapons in your kit bag, people will take you seriously. Mm. Um, and so that sort of and you can see that's reflected in, if you look at the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, they were the first five countries that developed nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, now, that sort of reward of a bully um, is, is a thing that we need to change. So we need to cut the dollar connection, change the, that uh, perception that these, the existence or the possession of these weapons brings political or other benefit. And we need to really, like you said earlier, hammer home the, the existential and you know, absolutely indiscriminate nature of these weapons. But they're not for our defence. They are not making us safer. No, absolutely. And I think we could start by hopefully removing some of the more unstable people in leadership positions. <laughs> and, well, that, that was really very, very evident. It was very <laughs> interesting too to see that, um, that uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook uh, say Trump, you can't tweet, but he's still got the code to the world's biggest collection yeah. of nuclear weapons. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. We need to, uh, a first start is, you know, to change how these things are talked about in military and, and operational circles as well, is to take them off hair trigger alert, is to get verifiable ways, which all exist now, to have all the nuclear weapons parties have legally committed to, but none of them have done, which is to um, have a verifiable and staged and stepped movement towards disarmament and abolition. Mm. So it is a difficult question, but it actually is really positive because an initiative that came out of Australia in the middle part of, of, of the first decade of the 20th century, so it grew out in 2005 and was launched in 2007, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, that initiative has now, in the preceding or in the following years, been developed ahead of steam, developed this treaty, developed a whole range of friends and is now in a position to welcome this really significant development of, of weapons being against or in conflict international mm. And grow a campaign from there. Yeah. So I understand that it was actually you and Dr. Sue Warren who um, co-founded the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons in, in um, 2007. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, we were involved absolutely from early days, and we're still both on the Australian board of ICANN. Um, uh, there was a few more, like a, a mini bus. It wouldn't have been a bus, Lena, but it would have been a mini bus. You know, maybe a little. Uh, Seven passenger thing, yeah. Yeah, seven in the high eight, Um, that sort of thing. And um, yeah, and we were part of it. And that's something that I'm very proud of that Mm -hmm. that role, you know, the role that I played in that because it it really has been quite an extraordinary journey. And it also really shows the uh, importance and the power of of people um, taking action, which is really quite extraordinary. um, You know, sitting in, in a cafe in Melbourne and you're talking about the state of the world, yeah. it's a fair stretch then to go, OK, well, let's um, set up a campaign and an organisation and get a, uh, you know, influence greatly in national and international treaty, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a real sense of, like, what has happened in that campaign, um, and I think this is a really important message for anyone working for social change, is that, um, like, sometimes it looks like there's no momentum of movement at all, 
and then that wall breaks, that dam wall breaks and things move very quickly. So I suppose for me a couple of lessons from this has been perseverance, um, the need to be tenacious and stick at it, but also that ordinary people working Zena collaboratively and creatively and consistently can uh, make an extraordinary difference. And the ICANN experience, in my experience of that and my uh, the lens I view that in and I've been engaged in has been really that one of ordinary folks working together make an extraordinary difference. And so I, I really, if there's a, two messages from ICANN's work, one is let's get rid of you make it lasting and fast. And the second is um, community action and clear strategic work can, does and, and will um, affect change. And, and that's really important for all of us who want to see change in all sorts of different Mm. And it's probably going to be the only thing that's going to save the world because, you know, this is this is where the rational thinking is happening and, as you said, this is the momentum that is going to create the change that is more sustainable. So I know we've only got you till uh, just around 9.30, so I just wanted to touch on a couple of current issues mm. right now. So one was the Ranger uranium mine, the other one is the Kakadu um, rehabilitation. Would you like to give us a little bit of background on what's going on there? Yeah, and again, this is a really long-running story which has had some really positive steps in, in recent weeks. Um, so some listeners will be aware that there's uh, Australia's longest-running uranium mine is, is the Ranger Mine in Kakadu. It's, it's fully surrounded by Kakadu National Park, but it's not legally or technically part of it. That's just a, that's an administrative fiction when it comes to ecological principles. So this mine was imposed on the uh, region and against the explicit wishes of the Mirar traditional owners, the local Aboriginal owners who have been and lived in that area continuously for at least 65,000 years. So it was imposed on them against their wishes. The laws were changed to have their opposition overruled. Um, and then in 1980, back in that those days, uh, the Ranger Mine opened. Now, just recently, on the 8th, of January of this year, so 41 years later, the Ranger Mine came to the end of its statutory period. So all uranium mining and mineral production and export from Ranger is now over, which is a really major step. Um, and what it means is that industry had looked at the Kakadu region as, a, as to be a, a uranium mining province through to 2055 or 2060, as a set of sequential uranium mines came online. Um, none of those have. Japaluka was stopped by community pressure and uh, a staunch campaign led by the Mira. And the other big deposit in the Kakadu region, Kungara, has been reincorporated or incorporated into Kakadu National Park um, after pr uh, prolonged opposition to plans to mine it from the traditional owner there, Geoffrey Lee, a jock, senior jock man. So what is that Kakadu, which was slated as a uranium industry zone senior, has now got no uranium mining in it, which is great. Um, it does provide two big challenges now, though. Nothing comes without challenge, obviously. One of those challenges is what you have identified, how to clean up 40 years of a heavily impacted uh, mine site. And the second challenge is how to transition to a regional economy that is a post-mining economy. Mining has been one of the biggest economic activities. It's not there now. And so the development of a uh, post-mining regional economy. Both of those things, though, 
are absolutely within our ability to do. Both of those things, all those challenges and complexities, are far superior to ripping and shipping uranium every day, which is what's happened for 40 years. And both of those things are in train. Rio Tinto own 86% of the range of mine, um, and you'd be well aware, and many of your listeners would yeah. be well aware, what a debacle and disgrace their behaviour was at Duke and Gorge in the Pilbara last year. And so we are very firmly, ACF and um, a range of other environment groups and the Mirar traditional owners and many others are very firmly on Rio Tinto's tail about this is the key test of their corporate responsibility. They, they need to clean up the range of mine and they need to do it comprehensively and they need to take the time and spend the money to do a good job because Australia's history in mining, Vena, is one of dig and run and Australia's history in uranium mining is very much one of dig and run and they forget the rehab and the repair and so that can't happen at this time. We can't have all the failed half-assed jobs of the past replicated in uh, this one at Ranger. So we, ACF, worked with the Sydney Environment Institute, Mineral Policy Institute and the, the Northern Territory Environment Centre to do a recent report where we went through the company's plan for the mine rehabilitation. We did a bit of a fine-tooth comb through that and did a critique and found areas where there are really clear impediments to them doing a really good job. And so we've, we've suggested a way forward which is more, you know, it's, it's about more detail, more time, more cost, more evidence. It's a very much a more, we need more report. Mm. And we are sort of prosecuting that with the company, with the Northern Territory and Federal Government, with international agencies that have an eye on this because Kakadu is, is World Heritage listed for both its cultural and natural importance and beauty. Um, so we are really keen to see that... Um, that this site, which is heavily impacted, which is in a wet, dry, monsoonal area, which is adjacent to a World Heritage region, we want to see this site uh, comprehensively and properly rehabilitated. Mm. And we've seen, like, just sort of the climate change with Kakadu too, the seawater coming into certain areas and, you know, doing great damage to the um, flora and the region. So there's so much at stake. And I know we've just about run out of time with you here, Dave. So I think the best thing we could do now just to finish up would be to let our listeners know um, what's what's the best thing they can do and get involved. Like, you did mention the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. So it's mm-hmm. the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, um, which was on the 22nd of January of this month. Um, So what can people do that have listened to you and have just become incensed about what's going on and would like to, um, you know, create this accountability with these, um, you know, for a very, uh, what do you call it, questionably psychotic large corporations that are raping our country. Um, So how how can they get involved? How can they get in touch um, if they wanted to become members and um, take action, become become activists? What should they do? Yeah, well... That's, uh, the first thing is, is realise that these things are going on and that we need to change them and that collectively we can. Um, in relation to the nuclear weapons ban, single best thing is for people to take a look at um, www.ican.org, type in ICANW, um, and, uh, and there's a whole... The, the Australia ICAN website has a whole range of, of links, information, activities that are taking place to mark events on the 22nd, all sorts of stuff, Tina. So, you know, I can Australia in any Google search will get you there. In relation to um, 
the the CAHU uh, issue. Um, have a this is all assuming people have got you know web access and do that. Have a look at ACF Australian Conservation Foundation. Have a look at the Environment Centre of the Northern Territory, um, and a really important one in that debate. If you if you have a look at um, Mira M I R A W R. Um, the Aboriginal Corporation is their organisational body, Zena, and um, they have a swag of information about what they're up to, about their exciting plans for transition and all that sort of stuff. Another issue that I just flag for you, and I think that it's going to be a really significant issue for um, uh, nuclear-free and anti-nuclear activists through uh, 2021, is federal government plans for a national radioactive waste facility part dump, part store in regional South Australia. Um, that has been a big effort and a big push for, for quite a few years and the current federal government configuration is to dump and store Australia's radioactive waste near a town called Kimber on the Air Peninsula. Now, the local farmers don't want it, the grain growers, the local traditional owners, the Bunkala people, native holders for that company, but the federal government and Minister Pitt and others are intent on pushing that through. So that's going to be a challenge and a fight this year, I'd say. And um, again, if people want to check out that, there's either eight Friends of the Earth, Australia has good information, and a group called NDA, No Dump Alliance. Wonderful. Um, they're all helpful. They're all good. Uh, so I think we'll see this year, just to wrap it up from my end, Zena, like we'll see a real push to try and popularise and get political commitments domestically to support the uh, the nuclear ban treaty. I think we'll see a lot of scrutiny on mining companies so they don't just cut and run, but they actually start to now repair and heal. And then there will be a big push and a lot of effort to try and ensure that the federal government demonstrates some responsibility when it comes to managing Australia's radioactive rather than just goes of the gate and tries to break bypass or bribe communities to host this stuff. Yeah. And I'd love to um, finish off with a quote that um, you had said. It was um, what we've seen through another mine, which is yearly, is backroom deals, 11th hour and rushed approval, broken promises and bypassed protections. And that's what we're up against. And that's why people need to educate themselves, inform themselves about what's going on and then take action in the way that they feel is um, enough for them. Couldn't agree more, Zena. <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's been short and sweet. Hopefully we can have you back um, later this year to talk about how things are going. And uh, that was Dave Sweeney, who is a prominent anti-nuclear campaigner who works for the Australian Conservation Foundation. We're going to go to a little bit of music for a short period and then we're going to have live in studio with us uh, one of the members of Beyond Uranium Canberra. And that was another Ewan McCall and Paddy Seeger um, with better things to do. So joining us in studio now, we have a representative from Beyond Uranium Canberra. So uh, welcome to the show, Winniata. It's Thank lovely you so to have much. you here. Thanks for coming in today. And welcome. Scotty's um, joined us. So um, I'll, Scotty, I'll let you fire off the show with Winniata here since you guys have been having a bit of a chit chat while I was playing the music. No so, worries. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah. Take it away. Maybe a bit of background on uh, Cam uh, Beyond Uranium Canberra to yeah, get our listeners up to speed. That's right. So, uh, yeah, who is... Beyond Uranium Canberra. Yeah, first of all, I'd really like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this country. 
to uh, nations within this nation and to the Canberra community. To follow up from uh, Dave Sweeney is a great privilege. I really mean that. He's an incredible uh, motivator and inspiration to many uh, anti-nuke uh, protesters. Beyond Uranium Canberra, yeah, it's just a small group, four or five of us. And uh, yeah, we were just concerned. One person that works at the back does research. We've been going for five years now. So we're just doing our bit here in Canberra. Yeah, right. So you're just a group of, group of citizens who are trying to do your best to combat this crazy threat. Absolutely. And uh, I know it's a very, very old campaign, but it really needs freshening up and, yeah, the passion's still here. So we're just going to do our bit. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And so Beyond Uranium, it started five years ago, you said? Yes, um, there was a national protest and uh, everywhere around uh, the main cities of uh, Australia, they did a protest, but there was nothing done in Canberra. So I was a bit uh, annoyed about that, so I thought, well, stop complaining. So I went to see two friends, Kerry and uh, Ryan actually, from Canberra here, and I said, would you be interested in studying, you know, a, the um, Beyond Uranium? And they said, yes, most definitely. So, yeah. Yeah, nice one, nice one. So what sort of events have you run over those five years? Yes, going over to Western Australia, walking with uh, Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people that are impacted by uranium mining. And because it's an isolated area, it's uh, you, you walk in protest for a month and that opened my eyes. You can get as much information on, uh, on what uranium, the negatives of uranium on internet and all that, but to actually hear it from the uh, traditional owners and people that are concerned in these small communities, it makes a difference. Yeah, right. So whereabouts in WA was that? And yes, uh, one walk was from uh, Waluna to Perth, which is over, ooh, I think seven, 760 kilometres, uh, a walk, which I think took about uh, three months. And Kerry, um, Kerry James was one of the people that uh, walked the whole uh, journey with the people. I did halfway, and her daughter as well, Clover. Wow. Yeah, so that was an inspiration. Yes, you're told the, the stories of the mountains, the stories of the land, the stories of the water, and mm. it's just a good way. And there's no alcohol, there's no drugs and all that, which is a challenge for a lot of people, especially the locals, because <laughs> they just want to try something different. And at one stage, there was uh, one fellow who said, Uncle, there's a pub over there, but I walk right past it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's good to yeah, detox with yeah, everyone well, else. Right. I mean, having given up smoking, that sort of thing is, a, right. is an achievement. It yes. really is a personal one. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, so what's the concept of the walk? It sounds like you're, you've, you've dipped in on a movement that's happening. Yeah, it was... Um, this is a, uh, there was a program just two nights ago with Auntie Vicky and uh, other aunties and Dave Sweeney as well. And uh, that's how they want to protest, is by walking their land, telling the stories of their land, telling the, uh, the mental health or uh, illness of uh, their communities. 
because they are impacted by these bullies of mining companies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, the beautiful piece about what you're saying, Mediano, is that, you know, this walk tube is reminding you what we're protecting. You know, it's reconnecting back to the land. And this is where I think you've got these, you know, these corporate monsters who have no connection to the land, who don't see it as a living entity, who just see it as a resource to be pillaged. It's very true. Yeah. And one time, one afternoon, we were walking and I saw this hill. And then I said to one of the local fellows, I said, wow, what's that hill called? And he says, that's not a hill, it's tailings. It's Yeah, wow. so it's, it's waste. Yeah. So it's the, the, the stuff that's left over after you mine it and then run it through all your chemical processes to extract the stuff as tailings, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I saw There's a whole how, mountain of it. Yeah, I saw how they treated the land and they just put holes in the mm -hmm. land and then leave it. So, uh, however, there's a new movement of uh, regenerating. Mm -hmm. It depends on the community, what they want mm -hmm. once the miners are left and all that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, let's get back to Canberra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a... Um, I think it was the uh, Deputy Premier of uh, New South Wales. Um, oh, Barrel, <laughs> Barilla Road? Yeah. Barrel. Barrel. And his office is in Quinbian. And uh, him and... Um, uh, the One Nation Party, they want to... I, I first heard that they want to put a uranium mine in Jervis Bay, but it's actually a reactor. But that was sneaked in during the COVID. So the thing about uh, Jervis Bay, it's part of the ACT. That's our port. And so, therefore, uh, I feel that it's our responsibility as Cameron people to, uh, yeah, to, to, to defy this uh, decision. And, uh, yes, Jervis Bay is very, very special. It's a birthing place, I think, for the uh, dolphins, for mm -hmm. a start. It's the main highway uh, for whales mm. going down to the Antarctic. Mm. So, yeah, that's in our backyard, mm. literally. Yeah, but right. So there's a proposal for a nuclear reactor at Jervis Bay, is there? Yes, I wish I had happier news. Yeah. But, uh, but this is anyway. this is great, Winiana, because, you know, like you said, it was snuck in, right? Like we didn't know about it. I'm just learning about it today. Yeah. And I think I'm fairly informed. So, you know, this is what we need to do. This is what you guys are doing great work. You're getting the message out there. You're getting people, you know, informed, and then they can be motivated to take action. Absolutely. And then we can call these lunatics to account. Great yeah. thing someone was watching. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's what we are doing here in Canberra. Mm -hmm. But it's you and country. Mm -hmm. You and country. So it's best in respect to wait until the you and people protest mm -hmm. and then we'll go in and, and support mm -hmm. and also uh, get something done here in Canberra because, uh, yeah, I think they make decisions either in the Parliament House of Sydney, uh, New South Wales, or the Parliament mm -hmm. here in uh, Canberra. So one of the things you've got coming up, I believe, is a, a gig on the 25th at the Food Co-op? Yes, it's called um, Music Before the March. Which I, march is it, Winnie? For the 26th uh, day of mourning, survival day, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I've, uh, I'm usually the one to organise the march from uh, Civic to uh, usually the embassy. However, last year it was organised by the Ngunnawal Teenagers and they did a fantastic job. And uh, so I assume that it's going to be t uh, organised by the Ngunnawal as well this year. 
Yeah, so the, the thing about it is you can, ex, you know, take as many banners as you want. So, you know, from the coal industry, uh, protesting about the coal and all that sort of thing. I think that's open. But the whole thing, the point is, is sovereignty. Sovereignty for Aboriginal people. So this will take place um, at the food co-op? Um, oh, this, uh, yes, this uh, concert. Yes, George is the main star. George and Bishop uh, from Andy and George. Yeah, Dan. that's it. Uh, that's long, it. Longer, longer, res, longer living residents of Canberra would know the Andy Absolutely. and George band. Get yeah. to that. Yeah, and they were here roughly about nine, ten years ago. Yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, and they became famous really quick and bought a bus <laughs> and travelled the country and all that. However, there's, uh, George is doing something different now and Andy no doubt has exquisite voices exquisite anyway he'd like to uh, perform for us with um, with an incredible violinist too from uh, the Netherlands and Alexander who's a classical pianist and little old me, and uh, yeah. And what just, do you, you what do you play when you're Oh, or you sing? Oh, I think I play the fool. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, no. Listen, uh, guitar, wonderful. Guitar and singing. I've been always fascinated by a singing voice, whether it be opera or hard rock mm. or whatever. But uh, yeah, the human voice is uh, oh, intriguing. You'll, you'll have to check out the the well, the new to me Mongolian. Metal band. Oh yes, singing. I love them. Ah, the Who. The Who. <laughs> yes, right. They're a classic. Yeah, they're yeah. brilliant. But I think it gives us a chance of um, just sharing the music, and also if people are hesitant in joining the march, maybe we can talk about that, the purpose of the march. But it's really uh, mm. the the front people, are Aboriginal people, of course. So, uh, yes, we're going to um, have a gathering at the food co-op on the 25th, about 6 o'clock. And, uh, yes, we've already got a response of 200 people. So, wow, George, <laughs> you just say George and everybody, you know. Won't have to put him outside, eh? <laughs> so everyone That's can it. see. <laughs> and are there any um, uh, restrictions or requirements people need to know about before they turn up that they should be prepared, anything they need to bring other than banners? Uh, for the march? Yeah, know? just so people don't get in, you know, like in strife with the local authorities if they... Yeah, I think uh, people have to be aware of that still. Although I'm very, very proud of Canberra for being COVID-free for longer than <laughs> any other state. So I think we've, uh, yes, but uh, still have to respect that uh, law <laughs> and uh, for health reasons. But I think, uh, yes, the main thing is I think you should have um, umbrellas. Just That's one of the hottest days actually in January and uh, plenty of water. And uh, so there's toilets up at Parliament House and no doubt there'll be toilets along the way at uh, various... That'll be the motivation to keep going on the walk yeah. when you need the bathroom, yeah. right? Yeah, and I also pay my respects to the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. It's very, very important this year. It's 49 years since the embassy on the 26th of January. So uh, 2022, um, the Aboriginal Tent Embassy will be 50 years old, mm. one of wow. the longest protests in the world. Mm. And uh, it's just humbling. Mm. Now, we have a, a, quite a few international listeners, Munyara. Could you give them a, just a quick 
bit of information about the tent embassy, just so they know what that is, because mm. that would be really inspiring for the indigenous sorry, peoples overseas. I'm really honoured to speak a little bit about the Aboriginal tent embassy. It was started in 1972, and there were many organisations that weren't happening, like health services, children's services, legal services, medical services, and... Uh, the biggest violent protest for mm. Aboriginal people at the tent embassy happened uh, the 20... I think it was actually the next day, 27th, 28th of uh, January 1972. Through that, changes happened. There was legal services. It was obvious that they mm. needed legal services, uh, children's services, etc., etc., housing... Um, opening up universities because they're just so damn exclusive. <laughs> but now there's Aboriginal sections in um, universities, many, many changes. I came here in 1992. Uh, I pay my respects to the Wiradjuri people, mm. my mum, my adopted mum. Uh, yeah, she was one of the women that started the Aboriginal Tent Embassy and uh, when um, they occupied uh, Parliament House because they wanted it for the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, but they were arrested and pushed out of Parliament House. So they reset up uh, the embassy <laughs> and uh, it's been going ever since and changes. Like, uh, there's more flag, mm -hmm. Aboriginal flags, Torres Strait <laughs> Island flags, here in Canberra. So, mm -hmm. uh, big changes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a great honour to support the people of this land and to understand sovereignty. And that word stolen, left, mm -hmm. right and stolen mm -hmm. this, stolen that, stolen mm -hmm. this. But it's uh, <laughs> what I really enjoy, mm -hmm. to support Aboriginal people. Thank you. Thank As you. As used to, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's lovely because I lived away for um, over 20 years and there was no acknowledgement of First Nations when I left Australia in 1995 and I came back in 2018 and I was just absolutely proud to hear us acknowledging First Nations, to, um, to see that there had been changes made whilst away. I know there's a long way to go yet, but just even public acknowledgement on all sorts of mainstream media was such a huge change for me to see as well. So um, I know that one of the other things we wanted to talk about too was that, you know, First Nations communities are receiving the brunt of a lot of uranium mining. And I believe that's a big part of um, what your organisation has been um, informing people about and you know, having campaigns about and, you know, the activist stance on the fact that uranium mining is, you know, often placed near Indigenous communities and there's been a lot of um, just uh, refusal to acknowledge the impact that it's having. I just think it's the most poisonous, lethal thing on the planet. Mm -hmm. And a dear, dear elder from uh, up there, Newman, Madu, um, Madu country. Yeah, this elder has passed now. She just kept on saying, leave that poison in the ground where it belongs. It's a simple thing to, to say because she told me it's always been a food source, that land, to her, her people and the water. They do use a lot of water too, those um, mining companies. 
yes. So they're basically taking all the resources out of the land and just leaving it as, as a toxic dumping ground. Is that that's sort of what people are left with in the communities after the mines come through? I say yes. Mm-hmm. I say yes. And um, I think it disempowers Aboriginal people are really one with the land mm-hmm. and this is the education that's mm-hmm. happening in mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. the closeness to the land. Mm-hmm. And I think the more we learn from Aboriginal people, the uh, longer we have on this planet, on mm-hmm. this... Um, well, they're the wisdom country. keepers, right? You know, these are our wisdom keepers. This is who we should have asked. Our wisdom keepers, this is who we should have asked first when we wanted to settle and learn to live yes. here. And I, and, uh, yes, and mm-hmm. I don't mean to put Aboriginal people on a pedestal <laughs> or anything, but it's our responsibility <laughs> to uh, survive and, uh, yes, yeah, support, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's an incredible uh, group called ICANN, and they came in here uh, in 2017 and our group, um, Beyond Uranium, we did a dinner for them and it was very, very successful. They were the recipients of the um, Nobel Prize. Yeah. Prize. So that was Dave Sweeney we had on just before. Yeah. And then our next guest is going to be Dr. Sue Warrens, oh who was one of the co-founders I'm with so Dave. I'm so privileged to be Yes, you're, you're sandwiched. Really? You're sandwiched, right? <laughs> That's wonderful. uh, Yes, and um, Malcolm Turnbull was the (laughs) Prime Minister at that time. And uh, they actually biked from Melbourne with the uh, Nobel Peace Prize and biked here to Canberra. So we put on a dinner and they did their... uh, I don't think Michael uh, Turnbull actually acknowledged (laughs) them. So, you know, forward we must go (laughs) and do our little bit. Mm. Yeah. That's wonderful. Right. Well, how, how do we um, how do we get in touch with Beyond Uranium? Yeah, we'll join, we're now inspired to come and help and be yeah. the watchdog and organise these things and meet these amazing people. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. There's a website Beyond Uranium. Carrie uh, Carrie looks after that side of things and uh, Corinne as well. So um, yes, uh, maybe for we'll start, come to the concert on the twenty fifth yeah, and enjoy right. the twenty sixth. So f- food co-op on the 25th in Civic? Yes. At what time should people start showing up? Uh, about quarter to six. In, in the evening? In the evening. Perfect. All right. And it's only going to be a couple of hours because we want an early night so we'd be fresh for the march <laughs> yeah. next day. And then where are people gathering for the march? Um, where's that, the starting point? I don't know yet. Okay. So they should go to your website to find that out. Uh, yes, we'll do our very best. And also I think the Ngunnawal. Uh, the United Ngunnawal Youth. Uh, yes. Okay, so wonderful. We'll have to get them on. Yeah, that'd be great oh, to have yeah. on. So that'll be the march on the 26th. And is that a morning start usually? That's I assume, yeah, roughly 11.30. Yes, yeah, so a late, late, late morning. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so get your yeah. beauty sleep and, yes, and come all empowered and, and invigorated. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you on, Winiana. It's um, always wonderful to talk about what's going on and the people that deeply care about making sustainable change and protecting our environment. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming in. And we are back. So I'd like to welcome to the show our next guest, who is Dr. Sue Warren, who is the president of the Medical Association for Prevention of War and secretary of the Australians for War Powers 
reform. Um, Dr. Wareham is also a fellow Nobel Peace Prize recipient, as was Dave Sweeney we had on this morning. And uh, she is a retired general practitioner from Canberra. Her recent focus um, has been with Australia's um, military strategy and on the environmental costs of war. She's also an expert on the hazards of the nuclear industry. So we'd love to welcome Dr. Warham or Sue to the show. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks very much, Tina. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So perhaps you could give us a little bit of your background briefly on, on what, what inspired you to get involved um, in educating yourself around the um, damage of nuclear weapons and uranium mining and then become um, active in educating people and changing some of the questionable policies our government have had. Right, yes. Well, the things that inspired me are really the very things that are coming to fruition right now because, as your listeners are um, uh, probably aware or may not be aware, the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty or Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is coming into force legally on Friday next week, the 22nd. And the reason that that's come into force that nuclear weapons are being prohibited legally is because of their horrific effects. Um, the fact that they basically incinerate cities and uh, cause untold damage for which health professionals would have um, very, very little adequate response. So this treaty is, is really the coming together of the concerns of, uh, of a lot of people, um, in, including, including myself. And this is what inspired me, well, about four decades ago now, around 1980, when I became concerned about the nuclear weapons problem. And it was because of the very nature of these weapons, the fact that they do cause hundreds of thousands of deaths, uh, ongoing um, injuries, illness for decades to come. And these weapons really have no place in civilization, and we need to abolish them. Uh, morally, they're repugnant. Um, medical, medically and from a health perspective, they're repugnant and now legally they're prohibited well, will be from next Friday. So these are the concerns that drove me and they've been driving a lot of people for many decades mm. and it's good to see some progress now. Yeah, I mean, What we talked about with Dave Sweeney earlier was just that, you know, it is almost an insane approach to develop nuclear weapons because we've got you know, like, no comeback from that. There's that that's for us is an extinction event at some level and you know we're still um, probably the only species on the planet that <laughs> won't even consider doing something like this to itself and you know the only planet it's got to live on so um, you also are involved with the medical association for prevention of war how did you become involved with that was that um, something that you set up or is that uh, is it, we're an no. Australian branch of that no, um, MAPW was formed in Australia, well, reformed, it was an earlier version associated with the UK group, but um, MAPW Australia formed in 1981, and I wasn't actually part of the formation, but I was, I did get involved pretty early on, so um, yeah, that's about four decades ago, and it was these same things that drove me. Um, initially, it was the nuclear weapons problem, that drove me. I, I, could, um, I could see that, um, as, as you said, Zena, that um, it's pretty insane that a species has created the means for self-destruction. 
um, and having a young family at the time, that was a strong motivator um, as well. Yes, as, as we mentioned, it's pretty insane for a species to devise the means of its own self-destruction. So this is something that's a pretty strong motivator for action. So I became involved in, in the move to get rid of nuclear weapons. But once you start looking at nuclear weapons, one realises that even though they are the very worst weapons, they're in a class of their own um, and they need prohibiting elimin elimination. Um, but regardless of that, um, in the medical peace movement, we sometimes look at these things um, in the form of a pyramid with nuclear weapons up the top there at the apex. But down below, there are all sorts of other pretty horrific and inhumane ways of killing people. And the wars that we, that Australia gets involved in, um, are not legitimate. If one believes in just war theory, they're not, not just wars. Uh, they make us less secure. They cause enormous damage to people in other places of the world. So um, we regard nuclear weapons as just the tip of, tip of the iceberg of militarism, really. And uh, war generally needs need much more serious examination of war in this country because Australia goes to war far too readily. And um, we need to recognise all the impacts of of the wars that Australia goes to mm -hmm. and realise that uh, medically the costs are absolutely huge. Yeah. So these are all the things that drove me as a health professional and as a parent and just as a, an ordinary citizen. Mm. So one of the um, campaigns you have going on at the moment is healthcare, not warfare. Yes, that really got a boost up during the coronavirus pandemic because what we see is that nation, particularly Australia, Australia has become very heavily militarised. Uh, so let's take the example of Australia. Australia is doing an awful lot, spending vast national wealth on preparing to go to war. But other threats, which are much more realistic threats for us, such as viral pandemics and uh, climate change, of course, and a, number, a huge number of environmental problems. Australia has spent vast national wealth on preparing to go to war, on actually going to war, and preparations for the next war. We're always in a war-ready phase, and we're actually continually at warfare. We have been since 2001, so that's 19 years. But what we re what Australia really needs to be doing is to be spending our vast national wealth on real problems, environmental problems, climate, and all the gaps in our healthcare system. So as health professionals, this is our particular niche that we, we want our, our government to be recognising that our healthcare system is underfunded in many respects. It's a, lot better than, it's a lot better system than in many places of the world, but we can do much, much better. And we need to be thinking of security uh, in a different way. When our government talks about security, they really mean getting us ready to go to war. But this is not making us secure. What's making us secure is having a is having thriving communities, good services, good education, good health care, well-funded for all people, equitable, uh, and having an environment that's sustainable and having a, uh, a world physical environment that's a good place to bring, our, uh, to bring up our families. 
so all of these things need far more attention from our government and we need far less attention on warfare mm. and far more attention on other things. Mm. I mean, there's that you know classic cartoon where you've got the soldiers going off to war and they're saluting the generals as they march by and they're all young, fit men with, you know, the sort of um, euphoric feeling of going to defend their country and then there's a, another panel in the cartoon as they're coming back and they're missing limbs and there's people with you know severe injuries and they're you know about half of them are missing from the group and you know this is the reality of war this is um you know what we're dealing with here is also you know an unsustainable way of living as a species you know we've got something like you know nuclear weapons mass destruction which could wipe us out could be an extinction event and then we've got ongoing conflict as you said this is the longest period australia has ever been continuously at war and you know to feed this this monster of of nuclear weapons you've got the uranium mining which the fallout from that um has been huge you know even as you said regarding healthcare, the impact of uranium mining on the communities that um are established where the mines are placed i mean all of this ties in right yes it does you see things all tie in and just getting back to the issue of the wars that Australia goes to and yes we see people, our service people coming back quite damaged and mm. often it's mental damage as much as physical damage these days but what we don't focus on as a nation is what's happening in the places where we go to war where we fight our wars and where these problems are just magnified multiple times um, so Australia, Australian governments are very careful to make sure that our service people are uh, sent to places where there are not likely to be too many body bags coming back from for political reasons. Um, but unfortunately that's not the case where we fight our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The human toll is, um, is just unconscionable. So we need to have far, far greater awareness of that. And yes, the whole war machinery, um, Australia's giving huge support to the weapons industry in, in all sorts of ways in um, through university partnerships um, and just export um, export facilities to help Australian weapons companies uh, export their their wares. So all of these things are quite unsustainable, as you said, for us as a species. We need to be recognising that Australian interests, which our Prime Minister talks about quite a bit, are really pretty much the same as global interests. Mm and people around the world in every other corner of the globe have the same needs and interests as we in Australia and we've got to work together with other people and not continually prepare ourselves for war against other people. So they're human interest. Um, mm. One of the things I just you, you touched on there about also the um, funding that's going to military weapons, a lot of people may not realise that their superannuation fund may be in West, investing in nuclear weapons as well so that it's a good idea for them to check to see whether or not that's happening and if they don't want to support that to um, switch funds or demand their fund not invest in those uh, those organisations. Yes, that's a very good point and the issue of divestment is one that's becoming increasingly important and it's been used by the fossil um, against the fossil fuel industry um, quite successfully. I think it's a, it's a powerful thing to do. It's a good thing for campaigners to, to take on. And yes, in relation to nuclear weapons, the same thing is happening um, 
MAPW, Medical Association for Prevention of War, and ICANN, the Nuclear Weapons Campaign, um, set up um, a joint campaign called Quit Nukes, which has the goal of getting superannuation funds to divest from any companies that are involved in the manufacture of nuclear weapons. And there's a website set up so listeners can have a look at Quit Nukes, and there's been some, some success there. And one of the very good things that the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, which is coming into effect in a week's time, one of the very good things that this will do will be, I mean, the, the essence of it is that nuclear weapons will now be illegal, and this is going to be very helpful in our campaigning outreach to the superannuation funds because one of the criteria that they often use uh, in relation to whether to divest from a particular industry or, or company is um, are the products legal? And when one can say, no, this company is making products that are now illegal under international law, then that's a pretty persuasive and powerful argument to be able to use. So the ban treaty is going to, uh, is going to make the road to nuclear weapons abolition easier in a lot of ways. And this is the 22nd of January of this month, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So next Friday, 22nd of January, the uh, Nuclear Weapons Prohibition or Ban Treaty will come into force legally and that will mean that nuclear weapons are prohibited under international law. Mm. And what we in Australia will be doing will be urging the Australian government to sign and ratify the treaty because um, our government shamefully has strongly opposed the treaty and continues to do so. Uh, Labor, by contrast, has policy to sign and ratify the treaty when they are in government. So we have the goal of making sure that that commitment on the part of Labor remains firm and solid. Um, but we're also working to get the government to to shift and to recognise that these um, these weapons must be prohibited and eliminated. Mm. And as we said with Dave, you know, if we, sometimes we can't change the thought processes of what I would say is unstable leadership. It's time to replace the leadership. Yes, yes. Well, uh, leaders, of course, are elected on a, on a whole range of things. But when we see our country heading uh, on, on a whole number of fronts, on just about every front you can think of, heading in pretty dangerous directions, um, it's time for all of us, I think, to get active to the extent that we can. Mm. We all have different capacities and demands in life, but I think to the extent that we can, all of us need to be active on the issues that are really important for our future, for our survival, mm. um, issues of planetary sustainability, uh, issues of living at peace with um, with the planet and living at peace with other countries and with ourselves. Mm. These are all increasingly vital for our future. Yeah, I think the, the analogy we've only got one planet, it's like being on one boat in the middle of the ocean and you keep blowing holes in it and then bailing out the water. <laughs> it's just this constant flailing of, of insanity. Excellent think, for GDP. Yes. But I think Scotty had a question for you there, Sue. So we'll oh, just... look, I was just wondering, I mean, you've got uh, there's a whole lot of things that have been banned in the past. I think biological weapons in 72, chemical weapons in 1993, landmines in 97, cluster bombs in 2008, and now nukes. Um, what, what, can you, what can we learn from these 
previous bannings that would that would give us hope for for the future of the nuclear ban? Well, it's a, a great thing to raise, Scotty, and that's one of the things that really has driven this campaign for the nuclear weapons ban treaty, the fact that biological weapons, chemical weapons, landmines, cluster munitions, all of these other classes of, well, unacceptable, we'll say, to put it mildly, unacceptable weapons have been prohibited. And because of the prohibition or ban treaty in every one of those instances, the weapons have become much, much easier to control. Um, and there's a real... Uh, there's a real stigma attached to all of those classes of weapons specifically because they're prohibited under international law and it was long overdue to have nuclear weapons in the same category um, and that's that's what's now happening. Even with um, the landmines and cluster munitions, even though these weapons are still a problem and nobody would claim that the Prohibition Treaty has absolutely eliminated the problem, um, the deaths and injuries from the, uh, the in fact, the, the use of these weapons has gone down dramatically since the ban treaties, the respective ban treaties came into force. And that's because the political cost of having or using these weapons are just too high. And one of the important things that's been observed is that even countries that don't sign the ban treaty, and thinking here of the United States, uh, even the United States recognised that they politically they couldn't keep on using landmines and cluster munitions, so the use of these weapons um, just dropped dropped dramatically, and the same with other countries. And that's an important thing to remember with the nuclear weapons example, because one of the criticisms that the nuclear weapons ban treaty receives is that the countries that have the weapons haven't yet signed and ratified it. And we know that. Nobody argued that they're going to sign and ratify it overnight. But what we do know is that um, they, they're, very, uh, they're very strongly opposed to the treaty and the reason they're opposed is that they know it's going to make it much harder for them politically to keep on with their nuclear weapons uh, policies and exercises and programs and all the rest of it. So, yes. So it's a bit of strong-arm flexing and nobody wants to be the first to, to make concessions. Is that sort of what we're up against? Yes, there's certainly a lot of falling into line. Um, when, uh, when the United States government uh, tells their allies to oppose a particular treaty, um, then most, most of the allies uh, will fall into line with that. But what we're seeing is that in a couple of the, two or three of the European countries, a lot of parliamentarians are starting to speak out against nuclear weapons and to really defy the US um, demand order uh, that they uh, continue to, to comply with US nuclear weapons policies. So, you know, um, bullying tactics and... I don't mean just the United States, but that's the example we have most evidence from. Bullying tactics from big powers can only go so far. Uh, they might last for a while, but uh, eventually people are going to see through it and realise that this is not in our, our or anyone's interests and stand up to that. So that's what we need to work for uh, in Australia.
Yeah, and I think that you know a big part of the work that you do also is education and advocacy, and I think this is this is where we're heading, right? Like this is how you make change. You get the people in solidarity to have a very loud voice, and to put pressure where it needs to be applied. And you know, I think for a lot of people, the whole nuclear weapons scare, you know, sort of died down for a little bit. It didn't go away. It was still very much there, but it wasn't getting as much attention in the media we weren't hearing about it a lot and you know people tend to forget things very quickly unless it's an imminent threat you know like we forgot about the bushfires three minutes you know into COVID. Yes mm. yes indeed um, and the issue of media what the mass media mainstream media are interested in um, is a particularly problematic thing in Australia. Our media ownership here is really bad compared to other comparable Western nations. Um, it serves us very poorly. So um, other media, such as community media, yay, um, well done to <laughs> other community media. Um, but alternate media, um, other than mainstream, is becoming increasingly important for people to hear about issues that mainstream media are not very interested in. Um, and civil society organisations, of course, uh, can create their own media um, and ways of communicating these days, which, which is powerful and that's good. And we've um, had some lovely voices too, you know, which I think I was living in Canada and we had amazing First Nations leaders leading the protests there against you know, abuse of the land and various things that were taking place. So, you know, that, that's been for us, I think, um, a, a, a wonderful you know, um, baton of leadership coming from the First Nations people whose, whose land is often the first place these um, the abuses are happening, you know, the uranium mining and, and etc. The impacts of the nuke industry on First Nations has been huge. Yes, yes, and that's certainly an important point to raise in the Australian context mm -hmm. as well, where, as we know, the Aboriginal people were grossly disproportionately mm -hmm. affected by the UK nuclear weapons testing in the 1950s mm -hmm. and 60s, mm -hmm. and the impacts of that are continuing. So the First Nations voice, mm -hmm. voices are particularly important. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, Sue, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. We're just about out of time. Um, can you give us a, a quick contact of how people can get in touch? Is there a website or uh, somewhere they can go to get more information? Yes. Uh, Medical Association for Prevention of War website or um, ICANN, International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia. Um, both, both of those have good lots of information. And I'll just mention that we have a celebration here in Canberra on Saturday, uh, tomorrow week, Saturday the 23rd at 11am at Nara Peace Park at the Peace Bill beside the lake, a celebration of the um, Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. Wonderful, thank you. I'm going to have to cut you off there. I'm sorry, we've just out of time, but I wanted to thank you for being on the show. Thank you, and we'll see you later. Thank you very much, Sina and Scotty. Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system 
so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.